We all know how serious and dreadful the current situation is in Myanmar. And for those of us outside the country, it can be difficult to know how to help. Fortunately, we found a reliable way to get funds to those who need it most. And any donations that you give on our platform will now be directed immediately to help the protesters. Just go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today. Or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Thanks for your consideration. And now let's get on to the interview that follows. It's a pleasure to welcome Ven here to Insight Myanmar podcast. He has some important things to talk about. So we're just going to get right into what it is he wants to share and tell us about. So Ven, the platform is yours. Over to you. Start us off on your topic. In short, what I want to say is for us to achieve what we want to achieve, um, a key component of it is creating divisions, defections, within the Burmese military um, because the Burmese military, even if um, it has, even if its capabilities, warfare capabilities are not as strong, it's still, po- it's still a Goliath um, in terms of both its number and its naval and air support. Um, and of course, having said this, I'm already assume, assuming that conflict is going to be inevitable. And I do think that conflict is going to be inevitable. It's just a matter of whether the conflict that comes will be a protracted conflict or one where we can see some quick victory soon. And in order to achieve that quick victory, we need to actively promote and have a strategy for creating divisions, defections, and mutinies within the Burmese military. Right. So that gets right at the heart of what it is you want to talk about. And we should mention that we're recording this on April 12th. There, uh, It's going to be released sometime later. Up to this time, there has been very little violence. It's been mostly nonviolent. Uh, when it's released, we're not quite sure what the state of the country is going to be. It could be violent by then. But then you are and you have been quite focused on this issue of defection and mutiny uh, as a way to um, cause dissent within. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think this uh, strategy is so important? Right. So, I mean, for one, uh, I do disagree with any characterization that the Tamaro is a. Um, a monolithic uh, organization that is very ideologically strong. I do not think that is the case. In fact, I think there are many internal rivalries that exist even within the top brass. And um, I may have mentioned to you before once we talked that when the coup happened, the top there were three, two generals and the police chief that were fired because they were known to be closely cooperating with Doang San Suu Kyi before the coup. Uh, so there are many internal rivalries. These generals, the whereabouts of them are not known. In the history of Damaro, from the early days of Nguyen Tan Shui, we have seen many attempts of assassination and removals from power. 
So the top brass is always vying for more power for themselves and their uh, close group of people. And even within the rank and file, what is different, very, what is different now, is that you, let take a let's take a a captain or a major or a lieutenant. Most of them are around my age, plus or minus, which means that they grew up their teenage years were growing up under a democracy where. Although they may be part of the military, they got to enjoy a lot of freedoms, including the freedom to uh, information, having access to YouTube, Facebook, all social medias that any American or European would have, and of course the access to just the freedom to be able to express. You know, short of um, uh, insulting the commander in chief and Don Sansuji directly, you were able to say. Pretty much anything on Facebook, and I think that brings、um, some sort of expectations as to what you want in your life, and that has been taken away. And I think, and I believe actually that most soldiers actually know this. And so far, there have not been too many defections within the military, but there have been. We are seeing more and more high-ranking officers,、uh, captains. That have deserted the army, deserted and defected the army, and these are captains who are on the front line. They are part of active battalions that are actually involved in conflict, and it says a lot when these captains choose to defect. They choose to defect for many reasons. You know, they although they are part of the military, they do not want a military dictatorship that takes away their freedoms as well, and also they want to live in a democracy as well. And、um, so these people are not blind; they are not ideologically hamstrung, and I think they want what we want as well.、Uh, the only trouble, of course, is that let's say that I'm a captain in the army and I choose to defect. Where do I go?、Uh, who do you know? Where do I have my safe haven? Currently, there is no safe haven.、Uh, well. They kind of is if you are able to cross over to where the armed ethnic groups are, and in fact, one captain that recently defected that had been interviewed by IFA and BBC, he did not identify where he was, but he said that he is in the territory of an armed group, which is in talks with CRPH, and he said that many within the Dumbarrow take his uh, uh, percentages with a grain of salt, but he said. Seventy percent of all soldiers do not like and are ready to defect、um, if a federal army is established. So I think the ingredients are there. We just have to put it in a pot and start cooking it. So as important as this idea of defections are, many of those people who are on the side of the protests have concerns about the、uh, actual potential and possibility of this taking place. There's a couple of concerns I've seen cited, so I'd be curious to get your take on them. One of them is this very insular thinking within the military institutions. You reference how some of the younger generations. Were in the military now have been exposed to social media and things like that, and that's certainly true. But at the same time, there's also a, a, a boundary and limits in terms of how they interact with the rest of Burmese people outside the military, their social circles, their families who they marry, their activities, etc. So it's just a very insular thinking, and they in that insular thinking they really absorb the fascist propaganda. And the belief that they are the ones truly protecting the country. The second concern I've seen cited is that many of the military have their families living in military compounds, which would put them at immediate risk if they were to just walk off in the middle of an excursion. So, when you're looking at this issue and trying to look at ways that this can happen, how would you speak to those two concerns? Right.、Uh, number one.、Uh, Without a doubt, there are people who have insular thinking, who really just live their own bubbles. But I do not think that anyone could say that this is a proper character, an accurate characterization of the entire military.、Uh, as much as I cannot say that 
say, 70% of the military does not actually want a military dictatorship. So the if we are going to be statistically honest, nobody knows what the exact statistics are. Therefore, the only therefore we have an hypothesis, and we must try to disprove or prove that hypothesis. And I think having that statistical approach is a much better way of achieving this than to uh, draw a characterization that we choose to believe in. Uh, and to the second thing, you are absolutely right. So it is, um, it is like this, right? I mean, let's say you're on a ship and you are the only one who wants to mutiny. If you're on a ship uh, and if you are the only one who wants to mutiny, where do you go? <laughs> what do you do after you tell your captain, I'm not going to row the boat for you? Well, you're going to be thrown off board. But in enough people, a mutiny is only when enough people stands up and tells the captain of the ship that he or she is not going to follow orders. Then, then of course, you are safe and the commanding officer is no longer uh, has any power anymore. So we have to, currently these defections are happening um, in small numbers. One person walking off the base, like Captain, I forgot his name, but the, there was a captain interviewed by the New York Times. He actually walked off base when he was stationed in Yango to uh, crack down on the protesters. Uh, and then another captain also walked off base as well. So, but then what if 10 of them walked off base? What if 100 of them decide to walk off the base together? Then what, is the, what power does the major or the colonel who's in charge have? Yes, maybe he has one pistol, but then, uh, then the families could reasonably be safe. So of course, uh, it, is, it always works better when these things happen in larger numbers to ensure the safety of not just themselves, but also their families. Right. And that's really a wonderful idea that if people in the military were to defect and to step down, that would certainly be one of the most hopeful nonviolent strategies one can look at. So people that are hoping for uh, a nonviolent end to this conflict, that's where one would put all the hope. Uh, another concern I have in pursuing the strategy and seeing it as uh, something that could reach that potential is that within the military, I'm sure you know this better than I do, there has really been a priority placed for the last 70 years of following without questioning orders. Of course, this is true for any military anywhere, but it's particularly true for this military to take whatever orders are given and to execute them brutally to the greatest possible effect. And so what do you think are the possibilities or strategies of how, and I'm not speaking specifically, of course, because I don't want you to expose anything that would uh, would would put you or this idea at risk. But generally speaking, how does one go about trying to encourage a sense of morality, of your morality or our morality, our ethics, and a internal critical thought process to a group of people where the opposite of that has been heavily inculcated, encouraged, rewarded, et cetera? Right. So you are, so that becomes tricky if the approach is to create a federal army and fight them militarily, then many people within the military who would have been on the fence about following orders because they were given orders to shoot innocent civilians will now just see these civilians as combatants, as actual combatants from another army. So that, that does become tricky. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have, to, we have to hone in on the propaganda, on the message that we, are, we may be pointing the barrel of the gun at you, but it is not you that we want to kill. It is the military dictatorship that we want to eliminate from Yemen. And I do not know what percentage of the military will listen to that argument. Uh, I do not know where if some people will even uh, you know, buy the argument at all. But nonetheless, 
it is very important that once conflict breaks out, the messaging, the propaganda, the strategy remains uh, very cohesive so that we are still able to pry open the cracks in the uh, morality of these soldiers and use it to our advantage. Mm, yeah, certainly. And looking at it from the protester side, right now, 10 weeks or so into the conflict, there's enormous rage and anger and hatred towards the military, the security forces, the police officers, the soldiers. So as there is this push to bring more soldiers and police back into the fold of CDM and the protester side, where do you think the public lands on that? Do you think they would, by and large, welcome them, encourage them, be satisfied when they come? Or is this immense anger and rage that's out there, is that going to be some kind of deterrent in creating an even greater wedge and splitting those sides to an even greater degree? Uh, I will tell you a very interesting conversation I had. I have a friend who is married to a major uh, in the Myanmar med medical, um, uh, military medical personnel. Uh, so the d military doctors, they have their own separate command structure. And uh, the husband of my friend, he's a major, well, pretty high ranking. Um, and <laughs> very f what's very funny is that they just got married <laughs> a few months before the coup. And once the coup happened, she took down all the photos of their marriage. They're still together, thank goodness. But she hates the military, and her husband also shares the same level of hatred against the actions of his commanding officers. But what she told me is very... Uh, and this was the time when the crackdowns had just started. You know, we're talking about deaths that number still in the dozen. Now, of course, it's 700. So you can imagine it was the very early days of violence. And I remember, I think it was after uh, a military with a sniper shot a kid in the head uh, in Mandalay. And of course, people started, the, pour, the outrage against the military started pouring out of everyone. And what she said was great. She said, oh, the generals are so happy about it because they do not have to manufacture propaganda saying, look, even if you go out to the streets right now, they're going to eat you alive. Um, they don't have to do that because we are doing that already. So, you know, it is going to be hard to convince people that what we are fighting for is not to kill the rank and uh, file on the streets, but actually the system that they represent. And of course, being the stooges of the system, uh, they, will share, they will have to bear the blunt of our hatred and of our animosity. But at the end of the day, we need to, we need to keep our uh, heads focused on the ultimate goal, which is removing the military dictatorship. Uh, but if we still, if we are not able to overcome the divide, if we still respond with hate when they come to our side, then it will be very hard. It will be very hard because they will be, at the end of the day, the calculation comes down to, you know, what is it in for me if I am to defect, right? I think, number one, you will think about yourself and only then, only afterwards, you will think about the country, um, some people might disagree, but I think it's the more rational, uh, utilitarian approach to thinking about it. Uh, the soldier would think, okay, you know, what is it for me? Will I be able to survive, right? And if the immediate answer is, uh, well, even if I defect, people are going to throw stones at me, people are not going to provide me safe haven, then the question uh, is automatically uh, becomes a no answer. And that is, I think, quite not ideal. So we really also have to start, um, you know, driving the message that we need to welcome these defections. And actually, lately, I have seen a little bit of a slight change in opinion. The IFA interview with the captain and the New York Times interview with the captain, both of who defected, 
um, they really gave a very good insight into the mindset of the military and the soldiers. And both of them said that many people within the military are not happy about what is happening and that, you know, they are willing to uh, come to the other side. And I think people are starting to realize. So we need more voices from them, from the inside, telling this, saying, hey, we want to join. Please, we are on your side. Right. So it seems like you're doing this high wire balancing act of messaging to both sides, to the side of the military, encouraging defections, encouraging them not follow orders, while at the same time trying to diffuse the feelings among the protesters that are quite rightly enraged and to encourage a way of looking that looks more at long-term strategy than just doing what feels right in the moment. That's absolutely right. And I actually think that all revolutions are based on this strategy. Well, one of the pillars of any revolution is based on this strategy. Um, in fact, Vladimir Lenin is the, <laughs> is the king of getting soldiers to defect. And uh, during the Russian Revolution, I mean, you will uh, remember that it happened at the backdrop of World War One, and you have a you have a czar that was unable to control the military, and the military just stopped following orders that any czar gave, and in fact joined you know Vladimir Lenin's side. Um, so, and he has many many good quotes on how to win the hearts and minds of the military. Hmm. So have you been doing a bit of studying historically into how defections have taken place in other campaigns and other places? Oh, yes, yes. You know, I have been, in fact, I am quite convinced that uh, this is the winning strategy. You know, this is the final nail in the coffin. Uh, of course, we need, we need to engage uh, in combat against the military. This is my personal belief. Uh, but if we if we're not able to um, implement the strategy effectively, then what we will see is a protracted conflict, the likes of what is happening in Syria or Libya. And mind you, even in Syria, there were many generals and battalions that actually defected over to the Free Syrian Army or the resistance in Libya. Um, so we really need to make sure that Dabarok crumbles on its own. Mm. Do you? It's interesting you mentioned the Syria example of where defections actually took place and it wasn't enough. So that makes me wonder, do you have any approximate idea of what is enough for you to be successful, whether you answer that question by numbers and percentages or by region or by high-ranking officers? But do you have any sense in your mind of what needs to be aimed for in order to create that kind of tipping point where the balance starts to swing to the other side. Right. Um, I do not think anybody has a, a percentage. Um, mind you, I do think that the Free Syrian Army would have won if it went for Russian air support. <laughs> so thankfully, we will not have Russia giving air support to Myanmar Damaro or China for that matter. Um, but having said that, I mean, I think the rule of thumb is the more the better, right? So we should try to aim. I do not know what is the tipping point that changes the whole calculus of conflict, but the more the better. Mm, that's an interesting comment that you just made. So if I understand you correctly, you believe that China and Russia will not be involved or engage in any way should a conflict develop because that certainly has been quite a serious fear of some people in forecasting what could come. If there is conflict, I do believe that China and Russia will, part, will, will be involved in the conflict. But the the comparison that I was making was with Syria, where in Syria, you actually have Russian air, airplanes, uh, fighter jets, you know, being flown by Russian uh, pilots in Syrian airspace on Syria territory, bomb, dropping bombs on the Free Syrian Army. Uh, and I do not think that Ch neither China or Russia will come in to 
uh, well, send in their troops, whether it be boots or whether it be airplanes into Myanmar. But of course, that is not to say that Russia and China will not give arms, ammunition, financial support to the military if conflict is to break out. Mm, right. So concerning this issue of defections, how worried, how vulnerable do you think the top military feels in looking at this concern from their side? I think they are very worried. Uh, in fact, in the New York Times article um, where they interviewed the captain, I forgot his name. Um, you know, we all thought that the internet cutoff, the mobile in data internet cutoff was because they wanted to stop ordinary people from uh, broadcasting live what's happening through Facebook Live. That is part of the reason, he said. But what is a bigger reason, according to him, is that they want to impose a complete information blackout on military personnel. They, what they are more scared is that the soldiers are stationed across the country. Even and mind you, you know this captain was actually part of uh, special uh, light infantry division seventy seven. He was taken from Shan State, put in the streets of Yangon to kill, to expressly kill civilians. He participated in the crackdown for a week, but he said at night he would secretly use his phone and read the news, and he starts realizing that these were ordinary people with families, seeing the photos of families crying. He would cry. In the interview, he said he would cry on the car so that other people do not see him. And he finally deserted base. So it is, they are very worried. And that's why they have started imposing information blackouts. And from the, from conversations that I've had with family members who are part of the military, like you said, they all live in a big compound. And they are, not, they are now no longer even allowed to go out of the compound, even if they want to go buy groceries. They have to do it within the military market. You are not even able to go out anymore. So the military is very scared. And they are tightly controlling the information access of its own soldiers. And I do think that that will backfire because these soldiers, like you, I've said to you before, uh, these are people who know, who have experienced the social freedoms that came with the democratic regime. And how long can they be holed up? To be honest with you, <laughs> I mean, most people in Yangon complain all the time that gosh, we don't have internet on our mobile phones. We don't have internet after 1 a.m. We don't have broadband internet. Uh, you know, we can't go out like we used to before. But actually, the people with the guns, the soldiers that are, have it worse because not only do they not have internet all the time, they can't even freely go out anymore. So they are in a worse situation. And I do think that one that sooner or later they're going to start thinking, geez, you know, why are we being held like prisoners when they tell us that we are going to be the saviors of this nation? What are they afraid of? Why are they afraid of us going out? And they're going to start questions. People are curious beings. And we have to hope that they ask questions sooner. And when they, ask, when they start asking questions, we have to be prepared to give answers so that they come to our side. Mm, right. So that brings up an important question of what kind of communication is even taking place. You referenced that when they have questions, you need to be ready with answers. Questions and answers can only happen when two sides are talking in some way. And from what I've heard, as the military has replaced the police with times of the police in February, I heard that there was some kind of interaction and um, and reasoning and uh, even some gifts or goodwill that was given to the police, you know, like water or food or something on a hot day. And that has changed now with really seeing a violent conflict. And so in the current situation, what type of communication between the two sides at any level is even happening now or possible to happen? So, you know, before it was relatively easy to get in 
communicate with the security forces because they use Facebook, they use TikTok. Um, but now, like I've said, there's a total information blackout. So there are many ways, you know, I know of one group uh, who is trying to communicate to these soldiers using radio frequency waves. Um, and, but of course, that still requires uh, a radio or a telephone where they have to listen. And the other thing, the, the next thing is just to communicate them while they're on the streets patrolling, the, you know, patrolling at night or while they are stationed at, um, in the middle of the city during the day. And I think there are many innovative ways of doing it. Uh, my friends and I are exploring how we can communicate them uh, while they are in the cities. Um, so our options are limited, but nonetheless, they are still there. There are still many opportunities. And like I've said, we must take every opportunity available. Mm, right. Looking at it from your side and your group, the people that are trying to pursue defections and having the security forces join CDM, just how dangerous is this work? <laughs> it is very dangerous because uh, let's say if they find us at night doing something, uh, especially during curfew time, they have the license to shoot to kill immediately. They don't even have to get down from their cars and ask questions. They can shoot us right away. Even during the day, of course, during the day, um, the danger of getting shot immediately is less, but nonetheless, um, uh, it just brings the possibility that there might be spies. So lately, uh, I see, I'm always monitoring my streets at night, and the police not only patrol with their, the police and the soldiers not only patrol with their trucks, but also with taxis. I don't know where they get these taxis, but they're always going. I know two taxis that are always near my house around 8.15, they come and go, they come and go. Of course, no taxi driver would dare to come and go like that during that time, uh, after curfew time. So it has to be, you know, their intelligence officers uh, or whatnot. So the, the risk is there. But then again, so many people have also given up their lives uh, for the, you know, to express their uh, thoughts and conscience. And I think this is a risk that we all must take if we are to avoid the cost of having to live under a dictatorship. Right. And it's not just the risk of going outside at a certain time, curfew or not curfew, as I understand it. It's also a risk of uh, if you're going to be designing and printing certain types of informations that you want to share, you need to find a way to print it somewhere. You need to find a way, a way to store it. You need to find a way to hand it out or to affix it to uh, walls or streets somewhere in public. Um, if you are communicating with different people, you you know every communication seems like it would be high risk in some way on both sides. That there can definitely be uh, people on the other side that are showing signs of interest, but it's really an entrapment kind of thing. So I imagine every step of how you're thinking through pursuing this campaign that there are just inherent dangers in every part of the process. Oh, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And uh, thank goodness I do watch a lot of spy shows. So at least <laughs> um, there's always, uh, in order to set up a network, um, you know, each node must be uh, independent. So if they catch one of us, then the trace is lost almost immediately. Uh, so there is a core group of us who are leading it, but any other people that we interact with, they do not know our names. They do not know our phone numbers. We use um, online numbers that we can easily buy uh, from the internet. Uh, they do not, they, even if they, we have to pass cash or pass materials. We all only use drop-off points. Uh, we never meet each other. So in essence, um, although we are working together, hopefully they'll never know who we are. We'll never know who they are. As much as they, uh, at the end of the day, they might like the idea, they might want to work with us, but then we might be entrapping them as well, right? They never know. They might ask the same question. So... 
it's for the best that we don't know who they are and they don't know who we are. I don't know anyone else and anyone else doesn't know me. Yeah, that kind of leads to my next question, how you began what you were saying, mentioning that you watch a lot of spy movies and so that gives you some idea of how to do it. But, you know, really seriously speaking, like you and everyone else that has been propelled into this were leading normal lives and just a boring, ordinary society like any others. And now all of a sudden people are looking at defensive techniques and tactics and strategies for uh, offensives or um, safe houses for communication, um, for uh, defections and this kind of thing. So how, what has it been like for you personally to go from whatever you were doing before February 1st to being thrust into the heart of some of these spy and suspense movies that you were watching and have to learn on the fly in a very high stakes situation. <laughs> yes, um, it is quite a steep learning curve, I will tell you that. <laughs> um, I mean, nobody, nobody, uh, I don't think anybody um, envisioned their lives to be this way. I mean, in Myanmar, right? But then again, you know, I think of a movie that I really like, Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure you know. You know, Tom Hanks, he's a captain, leads a search team. And uh, the privates and the sergeants ask him, uh, Captain, what were you before the war? And he said, I was a teacher in some Midwestern town, right? So, I mean, I guess our lives are somewhat, uh, of course, this is nothing like World War II, or D-Day, but nonetheless, you know, when you live in a country that is prone to conflict and crisis, your lives can be upended any time. And that is just life under life in a country like Myanmar. And of course, there are many other countries like Myanmar at this point, Syria, Libya, uh, Central African Republic, the Congo. Um, and uh, I don't, I, there's some people, of course, choose not to be a part of it. But, you know, for myself, um, I just cannot let this country go back to the past. And I, I cannot see that happen again. I mean, it has happened for, for two thirds of my life. Mm. Uh, and I got to enjoy 10 years of, mm. 10 years of progress. And, uh, and I just cannot let it happen. Yeah, right. And another thing is when you're looking at this issue of defections, part of that is some kind of moral reckoning. And you're you're actually putting two sets of morals against each other. You're putting the sense of morals of a military institution, following orders, and having what they call stability. And on the other side, of course, it's looking at a more human way of what ethics and morals are and uh, doing the right thing of not harming people. And when you look at that conventional understanding of ethics in any society, you go back to its religion, its spirituality. Here in Myanmar, uh, the spirituality for many people rests on the Buddhist Sangha, the monks, the monkhood who uphold or, or are supposed to uphold some kind of uh, virtue and a right livelihood following a discipline of the Buddha set down many years ago. So when we're looking at this messaging that one wants to get out to the soldiers to actually have a, a war of ideas, to have a war of ethics clashing and to want to have our own ethics be the victor there, where would you see the monks fitting in to that battle and to that discussion, given their role of supposedly providing some kind of uh, moral or ethical righteousness? Right. Without a doubt, monks can play a huge, tremendous role. Um, even though my beliefs in Buddhism have waned, I still give the courtesy, respect, and deference to a monk whenever I meet uh, him. And I mean, if I'm doing that, then would no doubt a religious person who, which I, I think we all can assume many people in Myanmar are religious, will no doubt listen to what a monk will have to say. And there are, you know, several dozens of monks who have immense sway over public opinion. 
And I think they need to stand up. They need to stand up. They need to speak on the right. They need to be on the right side of history. They need to speak uh, from a religious perspective. But at the end of the day, even without all the doctrinal issues and theological challenges of whatever uh, is is with politics, at the end of the day, they need to speak from their own conscience. And I think we all can agree, I think we all human beings can agree, that killing unarmed civilians, killing children, uh, mutilating bodies, mutilating the dead, in any culture, any religion, is wrong. And you don't need to be a Buddhist monk to say that it is wrong. But if you are a Buddhist monk, you should have even more reason to say why it is wrong. Mm. Right. Well said. And to date, we have not seen a wide number of Buddhist monks speaking out in that way. So I'm curious, why do you think that is the case? And can anything be done to gently encourage them from the lay side to, at the very least, take some kind of moral stand of a minimum case of simply encouraging not to kill and brutalize in these extreme ways? Um, the monkhood, the tanga, they have a very strict hierarchy, as strict as the military itself. Um, you know, they have the, the highest council, which uh, can order edicts uh, that every tanga has to follow. Um, so <laughs> the, we, find, we find a situation within the monkhood, uh, the same challenges that are inherent in the military where you're not allowed to question the authority of the monk above you and the authority of the Tanga council. And of course, so it does have to come from the highest council. And actually, um, I think two weeks ago, the council issued a statement um, effectively condemning uh, the actions of the military and the police. Uh, but I don't think it has been issued yet because they made the, in my opinion, mistake of consulting with the Ministry of Religious Affairs, which is controlled by the military. So uh, that is like, uh, that is like uh, the jury asking whether the decision is correct or not to the defendant that they are going to convict. <laughs> right? uh, and of course, what would the defendant say? Uh, he sees a guilty, uh, a guilty verdict, but he'll say, oh, are you sure, jury? That's never going to work. <laughs> hmm. Right. What you're doing on your side there in Myanmar to try to encourage this is really courageous with your small group of friends. You're speaking mainly to a foreign audience here that is listening, and I think many of them would strongly, strongly support some way that we can limit the carnage that could come. And this is one of the, as I said from the outset, this is one of the greatest hopes for nonviolence proceeding. Is there anything that the foreign audience listening can do in any way to support this process happening? Right. Um, I think that uh, without a doubt, um, media coverage, uh, it's important. I think uh, and specifically, in fact, you can, after this podcast, you can Google defections, revolution, uh, just those two words, and you will see a whole literature on, of political science on this issue. So th this issue is something that is not new. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is not something that I uh, ingeniously thought of. No, that, I mean, revolutions have happened so many times in history. We are just repeating and learning from what was done well. So international community, you know, your, internet, your friends abroad, uh, I mean, short of providing money, um, there's so much that you can do. And I think what we need is to educate the populace in Myanmar about the need for defections. And I think there needs to be, you know, like we have said before, we need to, uh, it's like, Balancing on a tightrope where you once on one side you have the messaging that goes out to the security forces and also the messaging that goes out to the people. I am focused on messaging towards the security forces 
and people like you, people like people who are interested, can focus on messaging towards the people, saying why we need to focus on this issue, how we can, how this strategy will make us make sure that we have a winning, uh, winning goal. And uh, to do that, it is not too hard. The literature is already there. So in a way, all you have to do is to write up research reports <laughs> and you know, disseminate towards the public. You referenced that you have been studying quite a bit uh, how defections have happened in other campaigns, and I assume that most of your research has been after February 1st. I don't know if this is something you just were curious about before, but in any case, through the work and the research and the reading that you've done, what has stood out to you? What has surprised you? What have you hit upon in some of the patterns of some of the things that you've read that you find especially relevant or meaningful or helpful at this moment? Um, essentially, you know, I, okay. So I actually think we have an easier, uh, um, we have an easier uh, situation than most other revolutions. Because most other revolutions, you have to convince the other side that what you're fighting for is just and worthy. I do think, I do think, and of course, many people can dispute it. Uh, and like I've said, this is not a fact. This is my belief, my hypothesis, my working hypothesis is that many people within the military, even the top brass, the soldiers, captains, majors, lieutenants, privates, many people, a lot of them believe that what we are fighting for is just and worthy. Um, it, so that makes it easier because... Now we don't have to, I don't have to be Vladimir Lenin traveling around the country making speeches on why our cause is just and worthy. We, they already believe that our justice is cause and worthy. Now the only option is for them to start acting upon their own conscience. And like I said, people are at the end of the day um, self-interested human beings where they will not act unless and until they feel that it is for their own benefit. And that the and uh, by benefit I mean uh, it doesn't necessarily mean monetary benefits of that kind. It means whether they will be safe or not, whether their life will be protected, um, and that will happen only when mass numbers of soldiers and police defect together. And in fact, I think uh, it was a quote by someone, maybe another Russian revolutionary, uh, who said that um, defections and mutinies happen. When people who want to do it but have not expressed it, finally express it together. Of course, this is not a quote. <laughs> the, the guy said it much better than I did. But let's say you and I uh, and then another guy, we are in the mess hall and we both want to do it, but we're not able to communicate, although we're just right beside each other. And But if we're able to push them to a tipping point where they are like, hey, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And the other guy goes, I'm also thinking what both of you are thinking. And the three of them will be like, hey, well, that makes three of us. What about the guys at the other table? I think they're also thinking what we're thinking. And before you know it, you might have 100 soldiers who are marching out of their bases at night, threatening their major, saying, you either join us or we shoot you right now. And that's what happened in uh, Sudan recently in 2019. That's what happened with the revolution that brought down President Marcos in the Philippines. So we have to reach a point where, where they are able to speak out uh, and then start realizing that they are not the only ones. This also makes me wonder about what the military was thinking and expecting on February 1st. And I wonder if you have any insight into what they might have expected could happen or what they might have even planned for as contingencies. Well, I, I once saw an article headline that that read the world's worst planned coup. <laughs> and I think it is true. It is true. They severely underestimated um, you know, the the resistance that people would put up. Um, and uh, I think I mean, many people actually characterize uh, the Damro as this, um, you know, like insulated organization. I think more so than the people at the bottom, 
the people at the top are more insulated than the people at the bottom. Uh, and they, they believe in their own lies. And, you know, mind you, uh, Myanmar culture is where you never, uh, especially when you are dealing with generals, you never say a word that would displease them. So if the general is like, you know, I want you to find any cases of voter fraud, you know, you will not even question if you know, uh, you will not even question anything he says, you know, you'll just try to support his statement by saying, oh, you know, here, here are cases. And you will go as far as to concoct up um, numbers and facts so that you, it supports what he believes to be true. Um, so I do think that, uh, you know, they are, the, the trouble is on their side and not so much on our side. Mm, right. So I know that we're catching you and you're in the middle of a couple of things. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be able to check in with us about this. I, Before we let you go, I just want to make sure that you are able to use our platform to the maximum ability to get your message and your thinking out. So has there been anything that else that you wanted to say that my questions or our conversation hasn't yet gotten to? I think we have touched on pretty much all the points. And, uh, but maybe one thing that I want to say to any listeners uh, in Myanmar or abroad, you know, I think at this point, uh, nothing is a given, right? It is not a given that the Dumbledore will win. It is not a given that they will lose. It is not a given that we will win or we will lose. It is not a given that... Uh, they are this mighty Goliath that will be very hard to beat. Uh, so I think at this point, we should not take any assumptions for granted. We should only have working hypotheses and we should work towards you know, either confirming these hypotheses or disproving these hypotheses because really it is a game mm. where uh, the person who is most open-minded and tries the widest variety of approaches will win. And I think if you study, this is the same case with war as well. Any conflict, any politics, anything. I, I, in fact, this is the scientific method <laughs> applied to warfare. Yeah, well said. And I really appreciate that thought coming out because from the first days of the coup, it was reported in a lot of Western media. I remember the New York Times especially that, okay, well, this happened and this experiment of democracy is over and now we're going back to these battle days. And that was just kind of the, the in, in the short space of a news article, that was often the summary that I saw in most papers in the first week looking, you might be able to forgive them for not having a deeper, more nuanced understanding of Myanmar, at, at, uh, having bureau chiefs that split their time between a lot of different countries. And Myanmar is certainly a harder country to understand than others, more complex issues. But you also saw a number of Western scholars on Myanmar, certainly not all of them, but some who also had a certain kind of finale view and understanding of how this would end up, that there was just, that the odds were just too great. This is just a sad case and this is how things are. And actually just an hour before doing this interview, I heard an NPR interview with another famous scholar, a, a, an American who came after 10 weeks is still supporting that view of saying this is, this is the way, this is how things will end. There's no other, sadly, there's no other outcome that we can see here. And I think that what you're bringing to this is so important because everything we do matters. This conversation matters. The people that are listening to this conversation, it matters that you're listening to it. What you do after the conversation, that also matters. These things, I don't want to be naive. These things aren't like it's going to snap your fingers and magic's going to happen. But we all have something to contribute wherever we are, whatever our role is. If we care about it, this is something that's ongoing. It's a game. It's open. It's things are going to turn in a dime. And momentum is a real thing. And every small little bit of action contributes to that momentum. And so we don't know how this will end. And if someone, if you read someone or hear someone telling you that based on their expert analysis, you know, spoiler alert, but they 
probably don't exactly know the ending. It's just a hypothesis. But if we're able to live through this moment by moment and day by day, there are things that we can do to contribute to wanting freedom and safety and democracy to be able to win out. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think any scholar of history will say that uh, any pundit, any scholar, any expert who says this is going to happen, this will happen, they've always been terribly, terribly wrong. You know, whether it's experts in the 60s saying Vietnam will be a quick victory for the United States, right? It didn't turn out to be that way. And the same experts, the same scholars of international relations and politics and warfare said Afghanistan was going to be a quick victory. Um, Sure, the United States defeated the Taliban uh, with minimal boots on the ground and just bombing the heck out of Kabul. But where is the United States right now having to fight a protracted war and having to negotiate with the Taliban for an exit? So again and again, and especially in such a volatile situation such as this, it is never right nor strategically correct to take assumptions for granted as unchanging uh, factors uh, everything is open to change. And like I said, at the end of the day, for Myanmar people, I think a quote by Abraham Lincoln is very appropriate. During the Civil War, he said, I say try because if we don't try, we will fail. And I think that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm just trying. And trying is certainly what you're doing. And really all of our best wishes and hope and support is with you as you do this. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and what you're doing and continue to use this platform as you want to reach out. And we just wish the best for you and your friends in what it is you're doing. And may you be successful and may you be safe. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for your constant support as well. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel and in fact are. This has been compounded by bank closures and as a result, ordinary wire transfers are not possible. Thankfully, through a trusted local network, we're able to ensure that all donations successfully reach their intended target. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our fund, which is 100% directed towards supporting the movement. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration.
You've been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We'd appreciate it very much if you could rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you can't find our feed on your podcast player, please just let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there in the future. Also, make sure to check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at insightmyanmar.org. And I also invite you to take a look at our new nonprofit organization at betterburma.org. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions currently going on on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You're also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name. If you're not on social media, feel free to message us directly at info at insightmyanmar.org. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that form here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Mike Bink and Martin Combs. There's of course Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing and a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well. And so we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. And we're always on the lookout for more volunteers during this critical time. So if you'd like to contribute, definitely let us know. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us in arranging for the guests we've interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and share such personal, powerful stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We want to remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note that as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there's a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, or excerpts of any episodes also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we're very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. During this time of crisis, all donations now go towards supporting the protest movement in Myanmar through our new nonprofit, Better Burma. You may give by searching Better Burma on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card at betterburma.org donation. You can also give right on our Insight Myanmar website as all donations given there are directed towards the same fund. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode.